From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. A song we often sang in my youth in church, but one I haven't heard in many years, uh, I'd like to share with you. Perhaps some of you will know the words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. That's interesting, isn't it? that the songwriter equates being the king of a vast domain as being held in the sway of sin. I'm going to say something about that in a moment. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Well, I love that song, and it always made me think about my own life and my relationship to God. It made me think about my relationship to possessions. And I jotted down the question that partly prompted our podcast this month. What does the Christian's relationship to possessions and money have to do with holiness? Okay, I can sense and feel and hear the temperature go up for some of you. I'm thinking back to my congregations in South Georgia. They'd be saying to themselves right now or probably whispering to each other, he's going to go to Medellin today. Why? Because preachers don't need to be telling me how to use my money. Do I dare preach holiness by connecting us as Christians with our relationship to land and possessions and money? Well, the answer is yes. Next month, we're going to attack it heads on, and the topic will be holiness and money. I'm convinced that there's no message that we need to hear more. And there probably is not a message that we don't want to hear more, speaking for many of us. Now, last month's lesson, which was on God's calling of Abraham when he was still Abram, has paved the way for us to look at our relationship to possessions and money. Our first podcast almost two years ago established that holiness is an alive relationship of living communion with the living God. Last month, we talked about the altar that matters is really the altar of our heart as we studied about Abram answering God's call, leaving Ur of the Chaldees and traveling to the promised land. The very first podcast was entitled, Holiness is a Matter of the Heart. The things that are permanent, we learned 
through Abram's story are imperishable and spiritual. The things that are temporary are material and perishable. Ron Sider says that we undoubtedly, as Christians in the United States of America, identify with the rich more than we do with the poor. That was in his classic book, 1997, uh, publishing date, entitled Rich Christians in a Hungry World. Now, we're going to be thinking about Christians in the United States today. Holiness is our seeking God first with all that we have and who and are, but also in that relationship with God, he keeps us and protects us. So we live a life when we are in that relationship with God that has nothing standing between us, that is at the heart of holy living, we stand in a way that God has us in his clutches and isn't going to let go of us and is going to protect us. But our part of this covenant relationship is to seek him first in all things. Next month, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at the experience in Egypt, which is where Israel became a nation. It was a small group of people that were taken into Egypt and millions that came out after 40 years of oppression. Egypt and the promised land. But I want to kind of open up our subject today by noting that God spelled out precisely how people, his people of Israel, were to go about living in the promised land. He gave them laws. Some of those laws prohibit unrestrained possessiveness and self-centered use. There are time limits placed on land holding. The gift of land requires responsibility, both ecologically and humanitarian. The land is given to people so they can model God's intention for submissive stewardship. They were to have a concern with their land for the needs of others. In fact, their care of the land was a reflection of their relationship with God and others. Last month, I quoted uh, Dr. Dan Boone, the president of Trevecca Nazarene University. This is from a sermon he wrote over 30 years ago. I'll have to let him know that I'm uh, reading his early works. But this is what he said, going back to that song, I'd rather have Jesus and the idea of sin being able to take sway in our lives if we pursue earthly material things. He points out that when the Israelites were moving toward the promised land, sin is viewed as possessiveness disregard for the needs and rights of others, irresponsible use of God's gift, self-centered motives in the use and accumulation of things. And then he stops and says, whoa, we're kind of talking about 
current language, aren't we? And then he says, sanctification restores us to a proper relationship with the things of the earth. And land in the Old and New Testaments become, becomes the source and symbol of money and possessions and things. The land motif actually jumps into the New Testament with even a broader application. Now you'll notice these things. A couple of them we're going to focus on textually next month. But we hear warnings about treasures on earth, serving mammon or money, being anxious for all these things, the deceitfulness of wealth, the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil. You remember favoring the wealthy by giving them places of honor in the church? You remember the parable about lavishing bigger barn builders who Jesus said were fools, about rich young rulers who won't submit to Jesus' commands. You know, possessions is the second most prominent topic in the teaching of Jesus, second only to his concern for the kingdom of God. Holiness preaching today should connect people, people in the pew like you and me, and dare to address our relationship with land and possessions and money. Dr. Luke Johnson in his commentary says, the way we use, own, acquire, and disperse material things symbolizes and expresses our attitudes and responses to ourselves, the world around us, other people, and most of all, God. He says, God's gift of possession presents us with earthly choices that reveal our inner life and our inner motives. Responsible stewardship flows out of a right relationship with God and others. And you'll recall many times we've defined holiness that way, right relationship with God and others. And sanctification alone, according to Dr. Johnson, can restore us to a lifestyle of careful management of God's gifts. Now, this podcast, I want us to explore, I'm going to kind of give to you an idea to chew on that will prepare us for looking at holiness and money next month. I've been captivated with the idea of the th theology of enough. Now, you need to stop and think about that for a moment. In fact, I think we'll be talking about it and thinking about it for the next few moments. I heard of a lady, I think I read of a lady who was shopping in a thrift store and spotted a cross stitch that had this on it. Enough is as a feast. It caught her eye made her stop and think. She said that the Holy Spirit, in a moment of anxiety for her, prompted her to make a list of everything she had experienced enough of that day. So when I read that story, I did the same thing. I made a list. I'm 
often aware of the fact that we live in certainly one of the richest nations in the world. And the idea of having enough takes on a whole different picture for us in modern Western society. But this was what my list was uh, looked like. I wrote down that today I had enough clothes to wear and enough food to eat. And I remember stopping and thinking about my travels, both in the country and around the country. I've been places where millions of people do not have clothes to wear and food to eat. I wrote down enough energy to play tennis with my best friend or my son. I have enough health, although I'm getting older, to make my two-mile run occasionally. I have enough books to keep me uh, entertained and to challenge me. I have enough gas to drive my car to any one of my children and their families all up and down the East Coast. Here's one I wrote down. I have enough seniority to get discounts at hair cuttery, Waffle House, and something I can't read. Oh, the theater. <laughs> Senior discounts, a wonderful thing. Well, you see, the idea of enough perhaps doesn't have the central part of our uh, thinking and consideration that it should. I realized I have always had enough for what was really important. And then I realized that's because I had a God who promised to meet all my needs. In the Old Testament, uh, we could have studied the Jewish feasts, but there was a feast uh, which all point to, uh, in a very practical way, the celebration that God is our provider and gives us what we need. But there was a feast uh, nearly 400 years ago in New England when uh, the first Thanksgiving was celebrated. We think about it at Thanksgiving time. That's a little, a few weeks away now, but someone writing about it wrote this. The temptation of fear must have been strong. The previous winter, half of their friends and family had died in this new land. Spring and summer had been kind and the harvest bountiful, but winter would soon return. Edward Winslow, a participant in that first feast of thanksgiving wrote this, Although it be not always so plentiful as it was this time with us, yet by goodness of God we are so far from want. That phrase struck me pretty hard. So far from want. Friends, I live a life that is very far from want. We live in a culture that finds it difficult to identify with Winslow's sentiment. 
While most of the world lives on less than $2 a day, even our leanest years look quite rich to everybody else. It's hard to recognize what enough really is. The unspoken and unconscious belief of modern Western society is that if we don't have a surplus, we can't possibly get our fill. Our dissatisfaction and lack of gratitude is the handiwork of a society and an economic system where if you look at it, only works if we overuse, overindulge, and overbuy. It's as though Satan has found our buttons. He tweaks and activates our natural greed by telling us we deserve better and more things. Of course, there's the advertising industry, which wants to convince us that we are depriving ourselves of luxuries that are really things we can easily do without. So instead of feeling thankful, we feel deprived. Our minds are permeated with the thoughts, thanks to the entertainment industry, of how the rich and famous people live. We take poor role models in the sports and entertainment industries to the status of demigods. And so we wind up thinking that life is not fair to us. We develop an unrealistic sense of entitlement that will never give us peace. Mm. I have a great respect for my father for many reasons. He was a simple and straightforward man. In the mid-1940s when I was born, he was a mainspring adjuster for Elgin Watch Company in Lincoln, Nebraska. He liked to work with his hands. God called him to be a Salvation Army officer and full-time minister. So he responded to that call and he spent his life serving the Lord. He lived very simply. He was always grateful beyond measure. We didn't ever have anything fancy. Our luxury was to always have some kind of boat so that we could get out and fish. But it wasn't a fancy boat. And we always said a prayer for the Lord to protect us and the motor to start. When he came to the end of his life, was very uh, grateful for how the Lord had taken care of him. We were sitting in his home in St. Petersburg, Florida. He had uh, determined that at that point, there was no pension for Salvation Army ministers. And he had determined that they would scrape together, which they did in the 1960s, $2,000, put a down payment on a house in St. Petersburg. We lived in Michigan, Illinois, Nebraska, all over the place in the Midwest. But this house was in a neighborhood where he had a good friend who was retired, lived and helped watch over it. And at the point where he was near the end of his life, he owned the house and we told him that that little house was worth between fifty dollars and $75,000. Now folks, you know that this is only 12 years ago. You know that... Uh, that house 
is uh, obviously small and uh, that's not anywhere near the average price of a house. But I remember him looking at me and saying, well, thank the Lord, you know, not ever in my wildest imagination could I have thought that I would own something worth that much money. You see, enough is a subtle grace. It brings a quiet feeling of satisfaction. I believe it promotes spiritual maturity. It requires us to be aware. And it results in humility in our own lives. Enough is an ongoing spiritual discipline a practice of awakening to the truth and trustworthiness of our God and of his word. He is with us and he will meet our every need. In a culture that swings wildly between fear of lack and love of excess, we can learn the secret of being content in every situation. We can do all things through Christ, including relaxation and enjoying the blessings of life, living between the extremes. Like those first pilgrims, some days and years we experience bounty, <laughs> and some days and years we give thanks in the shadow of loss. Yet by God's grace, simply getting by can be plenty. Enough can be a feast. Now I want to give us just a handful of biblical examples. I believe this is taught and found from the beginning of God's dealing with the people of Israel right through the book of Revelation. There are plenty of biblical evidences of enough. I think immediately of the Israelites when they escaped Egypt and God provided them manna. You remember the story. They were uh, on their way. They got across the Red Sea. And after a few days, the supplies began to run out and they began to think about all that wonderful food back in Egypt. And then the Lord provided them manna. Well, at some point, they even complained about the manna. But listen to what Moses said to them and what the Lord had commanded. This is from Exodus 16, verses 15 through 17. It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much manna as they need. The Israelites did what they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered just as much as they needed. The principle of enough. In that odd moment, Walter Brueggemann, the wonderful Old Testament scholar, says the Israelites learned that when there is escape from Pharaoh's kingdom of scarcity into Jehovah's generous zone of abundance, there is plenty of all. No famine, no scarcity, 
no rationing, no acquisitiveness, no anxiety, enough and more than enough. Never mind that it was the wilderness, he said. It was the wilderness where they were taken by the creator God who gave plenty. Hmm. The gift of manna signaled the start of what I believe is God's plan for the people of God down through the ages and today. He sees an experimental community that commits itself to the practice of enough. If you look at the codes and the commandments and the laws, the poverty relief and social policies of Israel described in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they were in essence something of a national experiment encountering the consumptive coveting. We're going to mention next week the 10th doctrine, thou shalt not covet, deals with the theology of enough. The excessive overconsumption. Those laws deal with the fearful, greedy overproduction of Egypt. The lessons were simple. There is enough when there is no coveted excessiveness. There is enough when we give up the place of control and place ourselves in a place of surprise, in the place where the gift-giving of God is trusted. There is enough when consumption is not at the expense of others. There is enough when there is hospitality, when there is a general making of space for others, when there is a mutual neighborliness. There is enough when people get prioritized over profit. There is enough when there is no objectification of people, when there is no reduction of relationships to market transactions. That's Walter Brueggemann once again. Friends, there is enough when everyone is imagined to be equal and no one is seen or treated like a thing that can be got or sold or traded or used. Pharaoh will have no jubilee. That's when all the land is returned. No year of release, no debt cancellation, no Sabbath, only a process where the privileged work their privilege. And Walter Brueggemann is going to teach us, we'll look at it clearly next week, that the overconsumption and consumerism in our society today stems right back to Egypt and how the Pharaoh ran the country. Built into God's plan for community is all that we need. In the Torah of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, there's almost a mantra of widow, orphan, and alien. You see, the marginalized and the vulnerable are now valued and noticed and protected and entitled. It's not accidental when we talk about biblical social justice. It's there in God's heart and mind and instruction from beginning to end.
And it's part of living with an awareness and a commitment to one another in community that often says, this is enough. The psalmist continues to echo a confidence in the everyday practical possibility of enough. Listen to what he says in Psalms 104. These all, and then he names the animals, birds, the fish, humans, land, sea, and stars, the entire creation, look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. That's a couple of Old Testament pictures that speak to enough as a standard. I want to give you one you're probably very aware of. Here comes a little three or four minute sermon on treasure and heart. The text is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Most of you will recognize this. There's a command. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That tells us to beware. It talks about our relationship to our possessions. And it tells us to not make a priority temporal things, perishable things. Then it goes on, Jesus teaching, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's telling us to be wise. Our relationship to God is what matters. That's what treasures in heaven are. It's the priority of the eternal. Last month, we learned about imperishable things. Dear friends, this actually is a reprise of last month's lesson. Do you remember the contrast in Abram's life between pitching his tent and building his altar? Pitching his tent typified his earthly residence, his relationship to the earth, his shelter from the sun and the storm. It's temporary, so he pitched it. On the other hand, he built his altar. That typifies his relationship to God, a place of worship, sacrifice, communion, and commitment. His altar is permanent. You build that. And you remember the problem. When we reverse those things and we build our physical homes and estates and pay our attention to temporal things, and it is with God that our relationship is loose and temporary, we find ourselves away from God in our own relationship. Well, what is the response in that short three-verse passage? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, our heart follows our treasure. Where's your treasure? To obey is to live life from a Christian perspective and to store up treasures in heaven. 
and to live at the altar of our hearts in communion with God. To disobey is to live from a worldly perspective and to seek worldly things. What consumes your thoughts and minds and hearts? I've been told many times, if you want to know what's important to you, open your checkbook and look where you spend your money. This is where we say to God, I claim your promise. You will provide enough for everything that matters in life. The application for me was very poignant about three years ago. I was watching Good Morning America, and some of you will know immediately who I'm talking about when I say Kevin O'Leary. He's also got a nickname, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. He was being interviewed, and this is what he said. He said, we should teach our children that hard work produces economic success and that that's what life is all about. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and money. And we live in a culture that is saturated. If you ask the goals, lifelong goals of college graduates, you will hear most of them say, I want to uh, amass a financial fortune or I want to be financially independent, all in terms of material things. The lure of financial success is acclaimed and touted all around us. For millions of Christians in America, the dominant expression of the American dream is, I can have anything I want, and I can accumulate as much as I want. No boundaries on the accumulation of wealth. We'll be looking next week at the parable of the rich fool recorded in Luke, and we'll see the stark choice Jesus gives in Luke 12:21 between storing up things for ourselves or being rich toward God. They are mutually exclusive. Let me close now just by mentioning a few things in the New Testament. This idea of uh, having enough as a proper relationship with the earth and with our Heavenly Father. I hope you've seen some of the scriptural promises. When Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer and told us to pray that way, he said, Foul, Father, hallowed or holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he said, Give us each day our daily bread. That's a confession of confidence in the enough of the gift-giving economy of God. It is a confession of our connection to each other. It's not my bread only that I'm praying to get. It is intentionally our bread that we seek together. And we do it each day. We don't have to ask for a life supply of bread because we trust that the same Lord who has fed us today 
will bring us new bread tomorrow. Can you see the scriptural promise of enough? The gift-giving economy of God emphasizes his provision for all of us. I would ask you, does that concept of living with enough and seeking only enough challenge you? It does me. The epistles of Paul incite the early Jesus movement to habitually practice collections. It's a discipline that emerged from seeking the common good of everyone, and it ensured the common good of everyone. The collections were a form of practical generosity that constituted the shared purse spent to find the God-shaped economy of enough. You see, the people who followed Jesus embraced a different economy of common goodness. Shane Claiborne uh, made a note that everywhere the early church practiced what Jesus had taught them, they eradicated poverty. Why? Because they were a gift-giving economy of open homes and shared tables and collections. Those are alternative economic practices that ensure everyone has enough. Most of us are affected by our culture of accumulation and acquisitiveness. As we come to the end of our thoughts, I would ask you, can you identify areas where you believe God might want you to make changes? Here's the rock bottom truth. He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Hallelujah. Well, next week we will pull out all the plugs and just address God and money. I hope that you'll join us and I pray that God will bless you as you seek him daily. This is Vern Jewett. This is the Holiness Podcast, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.